Hey there, Angel Donovan with Dating Skills Podcast. We've covered a lot of social intelligence kind of topics in this podcast, and that all helps you to build social awareness so that you can become more in sync with your environment and work with it rather than against it. Today, we're looking at a topic related to building your social awareness. You've probably come across situations where you're competing with other men for the same girl. And you've noticed that you have to navigate those social situations. What you may not have noticed is that women also compete for men. And better understanding how women compete for men can help you understand the situations around you and how to navigate those as well. Because sometimes it may affect you also. So it's just general female psychology today and better understanding women and their dynamics as well as your social environment. Understanding when women are competing against each other for you or for other men also provides you indications of when they're actually interested in you. So it's a good thing to understand from that point of view also. Today's guest is Mayan Fisher, PhD. She's the world's top researcher and expert on female intrasexual competition. That's basically how women compete for men. She's published over 60 peer-reviewed journal articles and is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and works with the Women and Gender Studies Program in St. Mary's University in Halifax, Canada. She also covers some other research topics, so we'll also explore a few of those, including what determines women's physical attractiveness, what makes them attractive to us men. To get today's show notes and links to everything we talk about in the show, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast, and you pick this episode out and you can get all the details there. If you want to get all of that information in your email inbox every time an episode comes out, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and it will be done. Now let's get into today's interview. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Mayan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So before we get into your very interesting topic, I'd just like to get to know you a bit. How did you get into this specific topic of female? How would you describe this? <laughs> I would say it's called female intersexual competition. Uh, so in other words, how women compete with each other for men or to retain the men they have. And the way I got into it is actually rather humorous. At least I find it humorous. I was finishing up my master's degree and I was looking at the time at how women rated other women's faces and men's faces according to where they were in their menstrual cycle. And my idea was that when women were ovulating or most fertile, they would be most picky about male faces. And I thought that would be a great study to do. Did it, did hormonal assays, did all this research, and absolutely no findings. Oh, so there was no correlation? No correlation whatsoever. Hmm. And so I have to go to Italy for one reason or another, and I'm there, and I'm backpacking around Italy as a graduate student, lowly graduate student with no money, and I look terrible. And I'm around all these women who are dressed very, very nicely. And I remember standing in the Uffizi in Florence and there was this group of women and they were dressed so well that their purses matched their shoes and they had their act together. And I'm looking at a painting and I notice that there's whispering behind me and I turn around 
And one of them points at me and then they all kind of giggle. And so tongue in cheek, I say, oh my goodness, they're just worried because I'm dressed so well. I'm competition for them. They're never going to get a date if I'm in town. And all of a sudden, it was just this, this moment I'll never forget where I realized that in my master's research, I had also been looking at how women rated other women's faces across the menstrual cycle. But I had treated that as just a comparison group. It was just noise. And because my focus had been on how they looked at men. And I had no theory to go for why women were looking at women's faces across the menstrual cycle differently. And all of a sudden it hit that women actually might be competing with each other to look more attractive when it mattered most for conception. So when they're most fertile. And it was that moment where I just realized that's what I wanted to do. And uh, it was a long time ago. And I remember I went back and looked at the data and it, it lined up perfectly with that idea. And so I did another study to replicate it and, and it lasted. And that was my area. Great, great. Since we're, since we're on the topic of menstrual activity, everyone talks about the experiments which have shown that women who are living together, their menstrual cycles will line up. Is that validated? Is that proven? Well, it is and it's not. It's one of those things where it's not just simply being exposed to the women that seems to matter. It's actually to do more probably with social dominance. This is a finding that's gone back now several decades. And originally, it just looked like it was going to be, if you're in close proximity to another woman who's not on the pill or any other hormones, of course, your cycles are going to synchronize. But then they started noticing it happening in the workplace and not happening amongst roommates. And that area took a, a bit of a detour, and it looks like it's now social dominance. So whoever is rated most socially dominant may be actually the person that all the other women are synchronizing around, which is interesting. So it fits perfectly in with your area. <laughs> does, which is why I know a little bit about it. It's an area I haven't chased too much, but I want to come back to one day. That's interesting because then they would all be rating each other's faces at the same time in a month. Would it not cause more competition? Or Absolutely. Yeah. Makes the most sense. So this is this is where it gets interesting because so let's say you've got an ovulating instead of ovulating women, um, those ovulating women are looking at each other as potential competitors. Are they being more accurate because it matters a lot to them right at that moment in their cycle, versus during the rest of the cycle they can be a little bit nicer and more generous in their evaluations? I wonder about this issue of accuracy, and that's something that one day I'd like to follow up with, but. So many other questions I just haven't gotten there, but... Sounds like it's kind of like sensitivity. Yeah. Like your rating system goes to either 1 to 100 or 1 to 10, and maybe normally you just go to, oh, 1 to 8 is fine, and then you look at the upper levels afterwards. It could be that it could be paying attention to a little bit more detail. So whereas you would look at, say, another woman's nose, and you go, oh, that's a fine nose. When you're ovulating, it could be, wow, that nose is a little bit crooked. It's off to the left, and it has a really bad, oily sheen to it. Yeah. So it might be also a detailed attention system. Great, great. Thanks. So we're talking about women competing against each other, but what exactly are they competing for? Why would they compete? Well, this is where I think maybe some of my work has differed from the work that existed before. My primary focus is how women are competing for access to good men or retaining the men that they have that they consider of high quality. And this is one specific area of study. Uh, we also know that women compete for things like access to resources for their children. We know that they compete for attention from husbands if they're co-wives. But my specific area is really focused on a monogamous situation. So you've got one woman with, with one man, and she's trying to get the best guy that she can or keep the man that she has. And this introduces some variance because you don't want a situation where all the women are going for the same guy, right? Because a whole bunch of them are not going to end up mated then. So you get individual variation and so on. But essentially what women are competing for in this context is they want a man with good genes. 
So they want things like symmetry and making sure, for example, the left and right side of its face is fairly consistent. They want someone who's healthy. They want someone who might exhibit signs of moderate testosterone, so a moderate brow and a moderate jawline. At the same time, though, according to evolutionary psychology, women are also interested in men who provide or are able to or could provide resources to them and any children they have. So it's, it's this issue of having a good man on multiple fronts. It's not just that he's attractive and hot. It's that he has resources, which may be simply wealth, or it could be that he's in a career where he could become wealthy. It may be personality traits related to wealthiness, such as ambition and industriousness. On top of that, they might be looking for dominance, so they might be looking for height. They could be looking for a sense of humor, all sorts of other things that tie into it. But essentially, this good man is like a unicorn, right? It's, it's hard to pin down, but that's, at least in theory, what they're going right. after. Do we know how many good men are out there in proportion? Is it like 10%, <laughs> 1 <laughs> 1%? Honestly, I think it all comes down to how you define it. I really don't know. Yeah. yeah. All right, that's cool. I, don't know. I knew that would be a hard question to answer. <laughs> well, I think it's also like what a woman thinks is a good man, say, when she's 16, is going to be a heck of a lot different than when she's 20, 25, 30, when she has children and so on. So I think to try to put a number to it is hard for that reason. But it's also, are you focusing on the genetic material, meaning he's tall and all that, but could be actually a really terrible father, or are you focusing on someone with resources? So my definition of a good man might not match my neighbor's definition. Is there any research to show that we're more focused on the genetics when we're younger? Because I certainly feel like just from talking to people and the way my friends have evolved over time, mm -hmm. it definitely seems like that used to be <laughs> where all mine was at all not... the time. And these days we've got other attributes that have become a lot more important to us than they were back then. Yeah, it's, it's something that I believe has been studied. I believe that there's probably a lot of connection between the, our genetics or the way we look and our personality features. I don't think it's so much like a dichotomous black and white situation so that we trade off, say, good genes to have these good personalities. I think it's quite possible that maybe the balance of what we put the emphasis on changes, but it wouldn't be completely in contrast. But as far as I'm aware, I'm not aware of that research, no. Great, great. Good to know. Mm -hmm. So what are the most important traits women use to attract the men she wants? What are they using in this competition, basically? Ah, physical appearance. It's all about... <laughs> I guess we need that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they use a variety of things. And this is where my research really has, has focused for a number of years. We know that when men and women are out in the dating scene, they tend to look for very similar things. So they tend to look for someone who's kind, honest, and it varies by what kind of relationship they're looking for. So if it's a one night stand situation, women really, really place men's attractiveness as a premium. That's their number one characteristic they're going for. Whereas men, it's not such an important characteristic. As we go towards a long-term situation, we know that both men and women are saying that honesty, uh, love, kindness, those sorts of things are first and foremost. When you start working down the list, though, you get to the point where physical appearance is on it. And we find that men place a higher premium on physical attractiveness than women do. So if you think of like your top 10 list, it'd be about number four for men, whereas it would be on, say, number seven for women. If you go down women's list, they're looking for, say, good resources or wealth. And that would probably be about number five, whereas it might not make the top 10 for men. So we see that's the trade-off. But going back to why women are competing in terms of attractiveness, because men are placing such a premium on physical attractiveness, that's the vehicle in which women compete. The primary way. And so that could be easy wearing push-up bras, wearing makeup. I've interviewed a lot of women and they say things like pages and pages of data, things like I try to make myself uh, as beautiful as I can. I try to make myself sexy. I wear high heels. I wear push-up bras. 
I tolerate facial peels, <laughs> all of these things that they do to make themselves look attractive. But the other side of this, and this is the side that doesn't get talked about nearly as much, is that women are very consciously also engaging in competition by trying to show their best personality characteristics. And one of my favorite statements that a participant ever gave me was that I tried to act nice, meaning to me that she's not nice naturally. She's just trying to act it. So they, they engage in that sort of stuff, too. But then on top of that, they also do some more nasty things, which is where they might put down a competitor. So we call that competitive derogation. And that would be things like you could directly confront someone and tell them that they're ugly or you could try to diminish her worth somehow compared to yours. So say you're with a best friend, another girlfriend, and you see this really hot guy and you're interacting with him, you could say to her in front of him, oh, so how's that, uh, that herpes virus going that you've got down there? And that's another way of derogating her. So even though the primary emphasis is on physical attractiveness, once you have the guy's attention, you can compete in a whole bunch of different ways including, you know, personality or putting down these other women. So you're looking only at the relationships because I guess we often think about catty women when they're <laughs> gossiping. There's a little bit like two girls gossiping about their friend. I mean, if you look at films and stuff, they're always picturing these kind of scenarios. So is that related to it? They're like, oh, look at what she's wearing. How does that affect competition? Because the other girl is obviously there's some influence because the friendships and the social connections around her are being influenced by that. But how does that relate to the end goal, which is getting the right guy? I think there's a bunch of ways. I'm going to go back to gossip for a second because that's a, an interesting topic to, to sort of unpack. We know that gossip is a way that people can bond with each other. So it has a, a really good mechanism for forming these friendships, keeping these friendships. In the same way, though, you can exclude someone very easily by not letting them share your gossip. That's thought to be related to uh, what's called indirect aggression or behaving, behaving aggressively against someone without making it direct. So you're not going to punch them in the face but you're going to let them know I don't like you because I'm not sharing my gossip with you. And that's also thought to be related to competition because you wouldn't share your gossip with someone you're competing against. So the exclusion is really a form of competition. So that's the first issue. Another way, though, is that you can transmit information about a potential rival in that gossip and that you can basically make sure that she doesn't ever get a guy because you know that it's going to spread through the network of friends you have. And eventually he's going to hear that, she's with another guy or she has an STI or she's moving or she's lesbian or something else. So that could be one motive. Another way that it all fits together, though, is that it's not just simply about trying to get the guy directly. It's about trying to also manipulate and rule out your competitors. So we've done studies where we've looked at how, for example, if a man hears two women over talking or talking to each other and one says something nasty about another woman, how does he view the one that said this nasty thing? What, what are his perceptions of her? And what we find is that he thinks that she doesn't have as nice a personality. Um, she's not as desirable. But he'd still think that she's as, just as attractive as he did before he knew anything about her. So it doesn't change anything in the it end. It doesn't change a thing. So basically, we call this our hot is hot study. Because if a woman's attractive, it doesn't matter what the heck she does, it seems like men generally find her just as attractive. So I'm just thinking sometimes this could be just me. <laughs> like, um, When I'm on a date with a girl, when her facial features kind of go a little bit negative, mm -hmm. when she's saying something, sometimes it's not even actually saying it, but I can tell she's thinking something a bit negative by her facial features. That will often put me off a girl, that kind of behavior. 
I don't know if that's just me or if there's any like anything to that in terms of the facial feature recognition or something. I could dig a little bit deeper, but I don't know if you wanted to go there. And that would be... Oh, no, when... psychoanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> According to our results, if you let's say you thought she was an eight and then she does these facial uh, changes... You probably, according to our data, would still find her about an eight, but now you might not think as nicely about her personality, or you might not be thinking of her as being such a kind person or maybe even such an honest person. So it's really that this attractiveness is sort of like a bubble that stays constant, but all the other ways you might evaluate a mate have gone down. And that's what we find with competition. So it's attractiveness remains the same, but as soon as she says something nasty, it's all these personality attributes and how much they'd want to be with her for the long term that begins to shift. Right, right. It's more likely it's not a one night stand situation, mostly. Exactly. If that's the kind of thing that's turning you off. Right. It's more like if you're considering like hanging out with her more or a long term relationship, something like that. That makes sense. That makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel too psychoanalyzed there. Excellent. I was a little <laughs> bit worried about going there. <laughs> <laughs> so how... Does a woman's competitiveness, like how she acts, does it vary through her lifetime cycles or different situations? This is something we don't know that much about. There's been a bit of work that's coming out of uh, Western Ontario. In London, Ontario, there's this university there by Melanie McEachern and Lauren Campbell. They've written a chapter for the book I'm editing where they were looking at women who are older and may or may not have a family and looking at the ways that they compete. And there's not a ton of data yet, but the theory behind it is that they obviously have a lot of different priorities and they have a lot more at stake than, say, a woman who's early 20s, just hitting the mating market and doesn't have kids, doesn't have a big mortgage and so on. And I think in theory, there has to be dramatic differences in the way women are going to be competing across, say, the age range, just looking at age alone without even thinking too much about all these contextual factors like family and, and kids and so on. And I think the reason for that is simply that if you're looking at attractiveness as being the primary way in which women compete, as women age, men tend to think that they're less attractive. So women are constantly competing to look younger. They're buying all these beauty creams that may or may not do a thing. Who knows? They're engaging in, in surgeries. And we have data on that to show that that is definitely increasing as women are getting older. So I've lived around a lot of different places in the world and different cities like L.A., New York, Bangkok, different places where they've got completely different trends. And the sophistication, I think, the focus of women mm -hmm. on these different attributes. I don't know if you've compared different places, like mini cultures, like you've got a city culture like L.A., of course, which is very specific. Um, and they have, you know, obviously very high standards based on the things I see are going on around me. But the women that I see there in the street compared to some other places I've been in are completely different, like San Francisco. Like, is this a comparison? I find it's like the other extreme. People are a lot more relaxed about things. I don't know if you've looked at those different places. And is it just based on what women see around them? Ah, this is a good question. So I would think it is. There's what's called a sex ratio, and there's different ways of measuring it, but that's how many men versus women are in your local environment. And so in theory, at least, the more that the ratio is skewed so that there's more men available and fewer competitors, the less you really have to worry about trying to find a good mate because right. there's a whole surplus of men. Whereas it shifts the other direction, you're going to have to compete a lot harder. And so this is actually work that we're, we're doing right now in my lab we're looking at more at a national level than, say, at a community level, but we're looking at different countries and we're trying to figure out rates of cosmetic surgery and other procedures in relation to how much money those women might have access to. And our theory is that when, when you've got a population where you think of the sex ratio and it's mostly even, say, and women do not have a lot of money, there's going to be a lot of competition for those guys that do have money. 
because the women don't have any of their own. So our theory is that in those countries, lots of women are competing for access to cosmetics and surgeries, uh, cosmetic surgeries, as well as cosmetic products. And as a result, we should see a spike in sales. In terms of the women's makeup and, and all of these exactly. kinds of things. Exactly. So in, in countries where, say, we've got a roughly equal number of men and women, and women don't have a lot of their own money or own ways to support themselves, competition increases for these guys. And we see that directly playing out in sales figures for makeup and, and surgeries. That's, that's really interesting. So are there measures of how much resources, how would you say, the equality of resources for men and women? You know, obviously in the United States, it's become a lot more egalitarian. But there's many countries I've lived in where it's not at all that situation, like China, even Bangkok, uh, Thailand uh, is definitely very skewed. Absolutely. As far as I know, the only way you could go about doing that would be to look at things like literacy rates, education rates. So proxies of resource quality. And that's actually something that we're looking at. We have a, a huge amount of data. We've looked at things like the gender equality index, where you know, it shows that Norway is very, very high. Canada and the United States are more, I'd say, top third. And then you get down into Uganda and Afghanistan, and it's very different. That's actually exactly what we're trying to do. So we're using this, these equality indices as well as resources as a way of trying to figure out this market and figure out competition. So how does that fit in with L.A.? Because oh, it's in the States. L.A. is this interesting blip on the map, isn't it? You know, L.A. is just it's such a, a crazy place. I've spent some time there. I actually really love L.A., but it, it's more because when I look around, it's, it's this town of beautiful people, of course. And I would hate to be a woman, a single woman in that town because the pressure to look great would be so astronomical. And even then, you're not assured of getting a good quality mate. It's just like the bar is so raised in L.A. compared to other cities. It's one of those things where competition has to be extremely fierce there among single women. It's not a ratio thing. Are there more women in LA or something? Could I... I don't know the sexual ratios for LA. I have no idea. Yeah. Right. I know there's been some work done on that, but I haven't, it's something I haven't followed up with. Cool, cool. Just interesting yeah. stuff there. You know, I suspect, though, the ratio wouldn't just be men versus women. I would suspect that it would be young women in particular that are highly skewed compared to the rest of the country. But interesting stuff. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things I saw in, I think it was one of your papers, was that sexual activity peaks for women in their 30s. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering if that increases competition around that time. Well, this, yeah, this is what we don't know. We, we documented that it does increase in the early 30s. And we think this might be, I don't want to be too stereotypical, but it might be sort of a last ditch effort uh, when there's some chance of uh, fertilization of having a child. And as far as I know, it hasn't been directly tied to competition you would expect in some ways that it would be increased. But on the other hand, again, it comes back to that trade-off. So if younger women are looking more for the really hot guy with lots of money and they can get this great guy because they have their youth and attractiveness to offer, then women in their 30s might be willing to settle for either a man with different characteristics, so say a better personality than genes, or they might be willing to settle for a shorter-term relationship than they would otherwise. So... I don't know how it plays on competition. It's something that we actually just presented on at a conference in Boston last week. And I don't know how it plays out in the long run. Yeah. Interesting questions, though. <laughs> the, uh, where we went with that, just as an aside, there's this theory called life history theory. What it comes down to is that every individual has to make uh, a decision in how they're going to trade off the energy they have in terms of reproduction or, say, somatic effort. So how much energy do you put into your body, improving your body, if you're sick, healing your body, and so on, versus the energy you would spend trying to find a mate, having sex, and parenting. And it's on the spectrum. You can be someone that has a slower life history, so you don't take as many risks, you're looking for long-term relationships, and so on. 
Or you could be someone who has a fast life history, meaning that you're really all about quantity of mates, seeking as many mates as possible. You might be a bit shady and trying to find mates. You might steal someone else's mate and so on. And what our research is showing is that as women get older, they actually become more competitive in general and that they tend to use a faster life history strategy. So basically it's like, oh, time's running out. Okay, must have uh, some access to mates. I need to get on with things right away. And that would correlate really well with that study you found. But we just theoretically, we can make that jump. But empirically, we don't have the data to support it yet. Great, great. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, for sure. This is something I think we've spoken about on the podcast before is the waist to hip ratio. Right. Right. And it's often talked about in the press and, and other places. But I understand that it's not certain that this is such a big deal. Or how do you look at it? So could you, first of all, explain what the waist to hip ratio is and why it's supposed to be important? Right. Waist to hip ratio is just as it sounds. You take the circumference of the waist and compare it to the circumference of the hips. And there's supposed to be this ideal measure of about anywhere between about 0.62 and 0.69, somewhere in there. And if the ratio is too below that or too above that, uh, that men are not supposed to find that body shape attractive. This has gone around in circles for a long time. And I think the more recent data is actually quite more compelling than it used to be. But in the beginning, when waist-to-hip ratio data came out, one of the debates was about whether it's body mass index instead that matters. So that's weight scale for height or if it's this, this waist-hip ratio. We threw, Martin Voracek and I, University of Vienna and I, uh, we threw a curveball in there because we actually proposed that it might be a different index, which is the curvaceousness index. So that's looking at things like, for example, not just the waist-to-hip ratio, but also taking into account upper body. So breast-to-waist ratio and so on, or bust-to-waist ratio. I think most men would agree that has some influence. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so. And we published a series of papers where we looked at things like uh, Playboy centerfolds. And that was actually the, the most interesting data to me that we published because when waste ratio research first came out, it was founded on a set amount of Playboy centerfold data. So a certain year range. And what we did is we actually went back to Marilyn Monroe, who in 1955 was the first centerfold, all the way up to when we published the paper, which was, I think, about 2010, 2013 or sorry, 2010, 2008, somewhere in there. And with this bigger data set, what we found was that waist-to-hip ratio was not stable. And the argument has been that, well, if this is the indice of male preference, if this is what makes women attractive, it should be stable. And we didn't find that. Right. So you're saying it basically changes over time. It seems like men have got a different interest over time in terms of that ratio. Exactly. And what we found is basically that as time has gone by, the women have become more androgynous, meaning less of a, a change between the waist-to-hip ratio. So they're basically more like stick figures, I guess, is what we were calling them. So it's interesting. Kind of like most models today. They tend to be yes. more androgynous than, than curvy these days. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's another study that I saw, and this is something that's quoted a lot. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. They've done these studies, uh, Clark and Hatfields, where they had some guys approach women and offer them sex and 0% of women took them up on that offer. But I understand you've been looking at some data that you found that says, ah, oh, maybe that wasn't quite, that's not repeatable. Maybe that's not correct. Maybe some women would accept these offers. I'm so pleased you found that paper. No one talks about that paper. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, we, we had this really interesting circumstance. It was just by fluke where we came across a reporter in, in Austria who, for his story, was going to go up to about 100 women. I can't remember the exact details off to my head now, but I think it was 100 women in various locations around Austria and basically say the equivalent of what Clark and Hatfield have said in their experiment, which is something like, I find you really attractive. 
strike up a conversation, and then at the end of it say, would you like to have sex with me? And based on the Clark and Hatfield findings where they found that no women would say yes to that, that's not the reporter found at all. He actually found that, I think it was about 14% of women actually did want to have sex with him, um, and he reports that they did engage in it, who knows. But he also found that there was another fairly sizable percentage who said, I can't right now, but I would love to in the future. Here's my contact information, or I'm in a relationship right now. If that ends, I'd like your contact information and so on. And our point was that everyone's citing the Clark and Hatfield study of zero receptivity in women as fact. And it has very rarely been replicated in a way that actually is meaningful. So what we were proposing is that basically it's time to revisit this. And it could be that the study, the way it was done, was very artificial because, you remember, it's university campus. You might have some creepy guy coming up to you and saying, hey, you're hot. Want to have sex? That's creepy. I think there's more social, like if you're doing that in a big city like New York, you just approach someone. They don't think anyone's going to find out. So there's a very different, different implication there. Absolutely. And, you know, age might have also been a factor because university campuses, you're looking at, you know, 19 to 21 year olds, 22 year olds versus in the city of Austria, you've got a wider age range. Same sort of thing. The anonymity makes a big difference. The real life consequences. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've gone to university, but we're so used to people coming up and asking us studies on campus that I think we're created. It's pretty much, I actually watch students of my colleagues trying to get me to do experiments. And it's, it's rather amusing. So I, I think the study was false. I don't think the findings are replicatable. Cool. Well, that's an interesting thing for guys to learn about. Because I see from an experiential viewpoint, some of the people we have on the show, they recommend being very direct with women. There's some guys who built this advice around being very direct, very straightforward, pretty much what you just said. They say, like, you know, I find you very attractive. So on, I'd really love to have sex with you. <laughs> like, just very straight. And, you know, they report that it works out very well for them and they find it a lot more approachable because they're just very direct and straightforward. Of course, it doesn't work with everyone. I think potentially some of it could be related to social standards that are changing because people are being, I feel that they're being more open over time. There's more sex positive talk out there these days, like if girls should feel free to express themselves the way they want and so on. So maybe some of the social stigma is kind of lifting and the results will actually change in those studies over time too. It's quite possible. It's funny that you mentioned that because we did the flip study of the pickup lines. So traditionally pickup lines, the studies have focused on men's use of pickup lines. Yeah. And looking at whether they're direct versus, I'd say, humorous or, or whether they're innocuous, like, so what are you drinking, that sort of thing. And the studies show that the direct pickup lines tend to have the highest effectiveness, right? So that'd be, hi, I think you're beautiful, you want to drink. And we did the exact same types of studies, but we did it with women's effectiveness of pickup lines. So when women come to men, and again, we found that when women are direct, they're more effective. They're rated to be more effective. So I, I definitely think you're right. The direct approach is probably the best approach for the most part. And it could be that our climate has changed to the point where we're ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think we've done the roundabout on here. Is there any bit of your research that's interesting to this competition aspect that we haven't discussed? What do you think this means for guys in terms of like, say I'm interested in a girl, she's in a group of girls or, or anything. Does this mean anything to me in terms of my approach to her? If I'm interested in one particular girl, does it affect me in, in any way? Yeah, that's an interesting take on it. I so focus on women in competition among women, I don't think about men often in the picture. But I think part of it is realizing that men's behaviors are a fraction of what's going on. And so if men see that women are engaging in interactions and don't understand exactly the motives of it, it could just be that the women are trying to size each other up, essentially, and realizing that that's, that's pretty much where it ends. I think that's helpful because sometimes some girls will start some drama between each other. 
Yes. You know? And back in the day, I was maybe like, what? Why did that happen? You know? <laughs> but when you come to like this competition going on, you could understand that, oh, the other girl liked me and this one was upset because I was these kind of things, which maybe would go over your head before. But if you start thinking about it, you would pick up on those subtle signs of what's going on. Or if, you know, if you're on a date and uh, you're with the context of friends or a group date and your date goes to the washroom with another woman and she's in a decent mood and then comes back and she's a bit grouchy, it could be nothing to do with you. It could have been that something happened in the washroom where they engaged in, in some sort of competition or, or something like that. And it's amazing how much of this is nonverbal. You know, most of it's nonverbal. So. so I guess the point there would be to make sure you're not getting influenced by these dynamics. I mean, if you like a girl, just she comes back from the washroom and she seems pissed off or whatever, then, oh, maybe that's because like there's some competition going on there and it's affected her, you know, but she'll be okay in a minute. So I shouldn't like think that oh, she's less attractive or whatever. Exactly. I would just say be robust in your views. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So what are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about your work? Ah, probably the best way is to check me out on my uh, my website. So that would be www.mariannefisher.com. That's M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E-F-I-S-H-E-R.com. And, uh, and go from there. Excellent. Excellent. Is there anyone besides yourself that you would recommend because you respect their advice, you think it's interesting? Oh, for sure. It's all about what angle of, of interest you have. So if you're interested in, say, younger women, it would be Anne Campbell in the UK. If you're interested in interpersonal relationships and the sort of what men and women want in terms of mate preferences, a good starting point would be David Buss's work, B-U-S-S. You pretty much can find evolution psychology all over the web now. We've, right, right. So I've been reading Daniel Bergner's book, what women want. And um, it talks about the research done in terms of women's sexual responses in terms of, you know, their physiology, which is different to the usual tools used by evolutionary psychology, right? So they're contradicting some things in terms of the evolutionary psychology template. I'm only halfway through the book, so I don't like, I can't talk about it. It's a book I haven't read yet. Um, yeah. But what I can say is one of my, my PhD students looking at sexual fluidity in women. So that's how Women that would rate themselves as mostly being straight or heterosexual, how they might follow the Katy Perry song, I kissed a girl and I liked it type idea. And she's been digging up a lot of research on the physiology um, of sexual response in women. And it's interesting because it does contradict evolutionary psychology quite a bit. And I have to say, I know the work that was done on the physiology. I know the researchers involved. It's good work. And I think that's one of the problems with some of the evolutionary theory or evolution psychology work that's being done is is not relying on biology quite often. Right. Yeah. So we're not using hormonal assays or we're not using different measures of blood flow and so on as much as we should. And that's definitely an issue. Is, is that something that's going to be started within evolutionary psychology, you think, which will come on? Or is it? There's a definite push now. Um, it's very hard to publish a hormonal study without doing actual measures of hormone levels. Yeah. It's no longer can you just give people a calendar and ask them where they are, or women a calendar, ask them where they are in their cycle. You actually have to prove it now. So I think there's a definite movement towards that, but we still have a long ways to go. I think it's going to be slow. Basically, the top lines of the book are that women are more sexual than we thought in terms of their responsiveness to situations and to other women and, and, and other stuff. And the assumption is that now that they are more sexual than men. So that's obviously something that hasn't been said. So the main interesting point of the book, so I kind of recommend it to people. Um, just to reset their views. There's still a lot of women are little princesses yes. <laughs> going on. And, and I think it helps guys who are less experienced to kind of reset their ideas by getting shocked. Oh, look, oh there's all these studies saying some stuff that's pretty uh, different there. So actually, there's a couple of other data points I just saw that I'd found is like, there's some also 
something about 47% of men have been poached compared to 32% of women from their lovers. So basically women are stealing men more often than men are stealing women, which also I think kind of goes against the stereotypes, maybe. It might, but it does make sense because if you're, you know, if you're a woman and you want to have proof that a guy is a decent mate, what better proof of there is there if he's in a relationship? It's also the wedding ring effect, which is that men who wear wedding rings are often rated basically as better mates or better prospect of, of a, being a mate than guys without the wedding ring. And it's because he's a proven man, right? So I, I think that does somewhat work with evolution psychology, but it's all on how you interpret it, I guess. <laughs> great, great. The last thing was uh, non-paternity. So they also called it cuckolded. I, I never really... Yeah, cuckoldry. Is that how you pronounce it? Cuckoldry, yep. Yeah, cuckoldry. So basically where you're in a relationship with a girl and or you're married and you have a child and it ends up not being yours and you look after that you know, child and you raise it as your own, but you never know. So I saw one of the studies said that was potentially on the decline yeah. over time. That I don't know. Okay. Uh, what I can say is that the rates of paternity certainty or cuckoldry, we don't actually know what the rates are. We published a paper where we rounded up the literature to find the estimated rates. And depending on how you measure it, it could be anywhere in the neighborhood of about 2% all the way up to 30%, which is astronomical when you think about it. And we tried everything to track down that 30% paper and we couldn't find it. We so, so that was a review paper you did? Yes, it was a review paper, exactly. And then we actually did do, we asked people basically how much they think it is in their population. It was an Austrian sample again. But it looks to be somewhere between 2 and 10%. I say it's more reliable. But what I think is interesting is the social implications of it. I don't know whether it's declining or not. But we do know that hospitals in Britain and Canada, for example, stopped giving out the blood type of children because it turned out that that was revealing cuckoldry, right? Causing so, drama. Exactly. Right at a very bad time. And there's for... an ethical question there, I guess. I don't know. Absolutely. Especially as DNA testing is becoming more and more accessible and eventually maybe it will just be done automatically. Because when a baby's born, if you take its DNA, potentially you could help it avoid certain diseases and stuff. So I guess eventually that's going to be done and then this might all come up as well which would be it's gonna interesting. Be it. And then you'll have the real data. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how it unfolds. Yeah, an interesting future. So uh, last question here, and we ask everyone this, uh, what would be your top three recommendations to guys who are starting from scratch and just want to improve how they interact with women and the results they get with women's success and so on? Wow, okay. Top three recommendations to guys who are just going out in the dating world for the first time? That's yeah, so, so they're complete newbies. They, you know, they haven't got any experience or... Um, one of my very first recommendations is just to be genuine. And I think a lot of data supports that. There's one thing about wanting to be a player or to manipulate women for short term and that that sort of thing. I don't think in the long run it's worth the, worth the costs. I think being authentic and being genuine is very, very important, especially as you're moving from, say, a short-term mating situation to wanting someone that's more permanent. You don't want to be caught in a lie. Um, so I think one of my first things one of my second things would be basically trying to smell good at all times. Smell. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, smell good. It sounds really odd, but it's actually one of the things that women are most likely complain about in a mate ah. and uh, be put off by. And is I, that hygiene or perfume, like aftershave? Um, or? It would be basically hygiene, so smelling like body odor, having bad breath, that sort of thing. Mm. It's also the going too far the other side, which is wearing really strong colognes, and basically not smelling clean. Clean scent seems to be, in particular, what women are looking for. And they actually comment on it when you ask them, what do you like about this guy? They'll say, smells good. And when you say, what do you mean by smells good? He smells clean. Ah. So just something to keep him, that would probably be my number two, because it's, it, 
takes down a very attractive guy right away and it can definitely help a lot of men out. Oh, I love that tip. That's great. So that one's that was an easy one to deal with. Yeah. Um, and probably the third one is just to bear in mind, it's sort of like the movie Beautiful Mind, right? Where all these guys are interested in the same beautiful woman at the beginning and then they start doing the math on it. It's called Nash Equilibrium. And they realize that if they all went for the same beautiful woman, that they're giving up other mating opportunities. And to be aware that you might not all want to compete for the same beautiful woman, it might be worthwhile to figure out what your interests are, who you are, and basically not compete like everyone else does. Right. So not for the same goal, if you will. And that way you're minimizing competition. You might also be finding someone that is really a better suit for your personality. Right. I think that's a really important one because of mediatization. And I've actually come across this. We've done coaching and stuff in the past where what they were looking for in women, what they described to us is basically the girls in the magazines and say like in England, for example, they have the Sun paper and they have page three. And you know, I remember some of the guys in England we trained, they were like, that's the kind of girl I want. But I felt like it's just because you've been reading that paper for a while. Or like, and the guys who are watching porn all the time, it's the same kind of deal. So I think what you say is really important because I think some of these guys haven't really thought about it. Yes. They're just kind of going for that thing that's been pushed into their mind since since they were 10 years old or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And as you say, it can have a big competitive influence because that's what everyone else has been programmed with as well. Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Well, Mayan, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. <laughs> Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.